remember kind of washing around several trees, pine trees, as I got kind of flushed down that 38-ish degree slope. That's another word for a guide, isn't it? Tabler. <laughs> <laughs> this is John Malechnig, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, the beginning of winter is certainly chugging right along, and I find myself pretty busy in a new location, um, doing some forecasting for a local avalanche center, as well as some backcountry guiding out of some amazing yurts, and about ready to head on back down to the Rubies for uh, a stint of heli ski guiding. So really cranking along here. This is when I get busy and I'm sure many of you are fairly busy as well. Um, So I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet as I got to get it out into the snow this morning. Today I'm going to share a great interview with a friend, John Maleshnig. Um, John has a wealth of experience uh, in the snow and avalanche arena from ski patrolling all over the world to heli-ski guiding. John is a certified ski and rock guide through the AMGA and working his way through the full IFMGA certification. And he's a business owner of Backcountry Pros, a guiding service based in the Wasatch that operates both in the central Wasatch, in the High Uinta Range, and the Ogre Mountains, just west of Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, John and I have a great conversation. We talk about education, perceived risk in the backcountry, um, the guiding track and, and some of the trends that we're seeing in, within the guiding industry in the United States. Um, and he shares uh, a great story of, of, of a pivotal moment within his career. So without further ado, here we go with John Maleshnig. Hey John, welcome to the show. Thanks for swinging by. Yeah, quite literally. Yeah, this is the first episode that I've recorded in person in the home studio. Well, that's the advantage of your home studio studio being in proximity to Mount Shasta. Right, but we, we don't get a ton of avalanche professionals coming through the Southern Oregon area. So I appreciate you taking the time to swing through and it's been fun catching up and and doing some stuff outside and staying socially distant, I, I might add, in this age of COVID. Um, but I do appreciate you swinging by the house, and it's nice to have you here. Yeah, no worries. Great to catch up. Yeah. So, John, I was hoping you could just give us the roadmap of your career within the, the ski industry and the snow and avalanche realm. Um, 
you know, looking back in the rear view mirror, what are, what are some of the positions that you've held and the experiences that you've had? Sure. Well, I suppose my, most of my adult life has been driven just from a passion of skiing and I moved to Utah and attended the University of Utah with, you know, the ulterior motives of proximity to the Wasatch and skiing at Alta. Um, Post school, I started work as a patroller at Solitude, which was great. I was familiar with the mountain and really liked skiing there and rapidly gained experience as you know, Caleb, from uh, your background also at Solitude. Um, it's a it's a place of lots of avalanche terrain without lots of hands, so you can gain experience pretty quickly. And yeah, moved on after a handful of years patrolling there and took uh, a position running a small snow safety program in New Zealand at a place called Mount Cheeseman and spent a string of years working at some of the small club fields, as they're called, uh, on the South Island. Uh, and really those places are uh, bare bones, kind of ski co-ops where there's lots of avalanche terrain and uh, not a lot of people to deal with it, lots of passive control. It's really sort of like, uh, in a sense, backcountry guiding with um, a small cadre of resort skiers, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, yeah, then took some of that experience and started ski guiding back in the States, going back and forth between seasons, did some cat ski guiding and started working into uh, ski tour guiding kind of part-time in the Wasatch. This is uh, around 2007 or so. And also started teaching some avalanche courses, etc. A bit more mechanized guiding. Started at, for a string of years, was working you know, in Utah for a period of time. After a few months, packed my bags, go up to Alaska, heli-ski guide for you know, a few months, and then head back to Utah for a couple weeks, go to New Zealand, come back to Utah, back to Alaska. Um, I like to say that, uh, yeah, I've been based in Salt Lake, but my de- my defining nature of that is that I've had a storage unit in Salt Lake, and that's what makes me a resident of Utah. Um, at this point, I'm a little more domesticated. I um, have, at this point, started uh, Backcountry Pros, which is a guiding business based in Salt Lake, and Predominantly, we're doing um, human-powered backcountry ski guiding in the Wasatch and the Western Uinta Range with a bit of uh, helicopter skiing in the Oka Range and uh, this and that, trying to keep busy in the, in the off-season, taking people rock climbing uh, in northern Utah and down in the desert. Yeah, it's, it's quite a colorful roadmap all around the world, really. It must feel good to um, be sort of planting some roots in, in Utah, although your, your roots have, have been there for a while, but to create a business there and, and one that seems to be succeeding must be quite an accomplishment. It's good. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, you get, you gain a, a lot of perspective working for various outfits and 
you know, obviously there's opportunity to pick up a lot of good things from a lot of other people along the way, but you start to get particular about how things you feel like in your mind should, should run. And at a certain point, you're the only person you can work for. <laughs> well said. Well, well, when it gets to that point, I think starting your own business is the next logical step. And I also work for uh, the American Avalanche Institute, so I take uh, a bit of pride in, in that and try to keep tuned into the, the Avalanche world. So that's worth mentioning, to kind of heading up some of their pro courses and meeting a lot of uh, the uh, you know up-and-coming people in the industry is great and trying to keep current. So. Sure. Something we've been talking about this morning before we hit record is just this idea of... of a shift in the backcountry in in a lot of ways, really. And there's been a lot of positive changes within the backcountry community in the last 20 years. So much more information at our fingertips, um, both weather forecasts, avalanche forecasts, information, crowdsourced information coming from the backcountry from um, really smart dedicated backcountry users um but we've also talked a little bit about how maybe not everybody is out there taking a lot of risk right this is a game that we i always talk about playing the long game right we want to do this for the rest of our lives and we want to stay safe doing so um and so you just spoke about teaching some avalanche courses. What are some ways that you've noticed kind of that shift going on, both in your avalanche courses and just in backcountry travel, um, say from, from when you started backcountry skiing in the early 2000s to now? Well, I, I mean, so much has changed in the world since, um, you know, that time. Uh, everything down to the way we communicate, the way we're exposed to information. Um, it, we've certainly thing our behavior has been normalized to a, a, a large extent. Um, we are able to see people getting the goods, doing things in live time almost of what you know we may desire. Uh, so naturally, we want to participate and get what other people are getting because we're missing out if we're not. So obviously there's lots of contributing factors to that social media, et cetera. Um, you know, exposure from outdoor companies, et cetera, you know, publications, this and that. It's the life we lead, <clears throat> not just with backcountry skiing, but life in general. Backcountry skiing since the early 2000s has exploded and, and in the Wasatch is no exception. It's a, it's a busy place. There are, there are dozens, hundreds of people on a given day in a particular zone. And there is a panic to get the goods and be that guy that's getting it and not being the guy that doesn't. So, uh, people really are forced into terrain, perhaps, um, whether they realize the exposure that they're putting themselves in or not. And uh, whether they understand the risks 
uh, that they're taking um, is, is questionable. So since the early 2000s, there's certainly been a shift of when terrain is utilized and mentalities over various terrain usage. I think sometimes about this idea that, uh, that if if the same if we approach the same slope in a high density population area that had a big backcountry skiing riding population, if we approach that same slope somewhere where we hadn't seen anybody for two days, yeah. would we make would you and I make the same decision if we were out skiing for our our personal recreation we make the same decision even if it's the same slope characteristics but just without the outside influence of a large population yeah i think we're influenced by that right and studies have shown that that people are yeah what do you think about that it's interesting i mean and you know i've been fortunate enough i kind of like to say that I've, i've seen what it was like uh, I've been in the industry just long enough to have seen, you know, what this sort of old guard of old ski tourers, those those freaks that would hike up the mountain for their turns when it wasn't normal to do so, um, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, there were certain there were, it was simple back then. There were areas that you just didn't go to in the winter potentially if there was steep avalanche terrain, and you can even see it in some of the old guidebooks. The the language you know, persists to, to this day in those publications where people just don't go there in the winter. Um, nowadays, you know, it's, we have much, a much greater degree of education, but we, uh, we also push the margin a lot closer. Uh, we're more apt to making uh, a mistake rather than if we had just avoided terrain from the beginning. Why is that? We have more information, don't you think that if we had more information, shouldn't we be making more informed decisions? True, but we're there. (laughs) (laughs) And if we weren't there, you know, we wouldn't, I mean, yeah, we wouldn't be getting quite as radical, but there's still a chance that we can have a problem. Um, whereas if we do more of our forecasting on a longer, a longer term, a seasonal basis, maybe we just wouldn't have been there before say the, you know, the end of February or something like that versus mm. pushing the envelope and changing our, our overall behavior, sort of a seasonal analysis versus a kind of a day to day avalanche advisory type analysis. Sure. And, and to be clear, I'm all about um, respecting other people's acceptance of risk and risk sure. tolerance. And, and, and I think that somebody with more experience and education, I think it's acceptable that they have a higher risk tolerance than somebody that doesn't. Right. But I think they need to know that they're accepting a higher tolerance of risk. True, true. Um, uh, unfortunately, it, I think that with information being normalized the way that it is that people's perception gets potentially skewed as to the actual risk that, that, that is involved. And what's interesting from the, the, the point of view of a, an, an avalanche educator is sometimes we, 
you know, we sort of talk about how we want to teach to the a certain common denominator of, of uh, our audience in a, a particular course so that we can, you know, improve potentially the safety of, of everyone involved. Maybe we have, but, you know, in an avalanche course, we have varying goals and very, I mean, not everybody may be wanting to ski super aggressive, gnarly terrain in the middle of the winter. Uh, maybe we have people that aren't necessarily tuned into the ski industry. So do we, the, the, the question is, do we teach to everybody and in a sense, encourage travel on avalanche terrain with a particular, a particular level of education or do we teach avoidance? So when we make these assumptions, it's, it's a fine line of where we uh, place that. Let's pick that apart a little bit. So, so one approach would be to teach to the person who has the, the upper end of risk tolerance. So they're, they're willing to take more risk. Right. Right. But then what happens to the population in your avalanche course that wouldn't necessarily take that risk? Are they learning habits to take more risk in an avalanche course? Is that what you're getting at? I think that that's possible for sure. Um, it's a fine line. I've definitely, it what's so interesting is you will get, I'll get a question every now and then, and this is more on the entry level coursework that somebody will, you know, we'll spend time. I'm just talking about the, the nitty gritty of, of, of Abby one or whatever. And, and somebody says, well, okay, well we've learned how to identify avalanche terrain. Basically, why do, why do we need to know any more? we can avoid it now. So why do we, why do we want to push the envelope closer and closer just to get some powder turns and avalanche terrain when we can easily get powder skiing and lower angle terrain, et cetera. So we, we need to be careful about assumptions of people's uh, willingness to hang it out there. It's interesting. I see it firsthand. My, uh, my girlfriend, she's a great skier and grew up skiing, but isn't really necessarily tuned into the ski industry or historically has not been. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting seeing people's difference in perspective based on uh, a lack of potential outside information influencing, her, say, her decisions in that, that context. So she has a pretty good defense against having the fear of missing out, it sounds like. It does, in a sense, until she goes skiing with me. Mm. And then you influence her. That I influence her. I'm a bad influence. <laughs> well, I'm then, an enabler. That's yeah. another word for a guy is an enabler. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's great. An enabler. Yeah. We are enabling the powder addiction, perhaps, when we're taking people ski guiding. And we're showing people, not just ski guides, this could be a, a friend or a mentor, showing people that are a little bit less experienced what the what the experience can be true and and it it can truly be an addiction i think (laughs) yeah um but that is certainly a rational way um to think about it especially if you tune into kind of the beginner's mind and if you kind of think back to when you started ski touring like that is that's how it's pretty black and white well we can just avoid avalanche terrain and i think Perhaps I know I get caught up in in missing out on the great lines or the great shot, great Instagram feed, 
Um, and I think that's a huge influence in people's decision-making this day and age, whether they're willing to admit it or not. I think, I think social media and positionality and how you stack up to others within your community is driving decision-making um, a little bit more so than it should. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think as a, like we were alluding to, I think as a consequence that we're getting more people with less experience in aggressive terrain, bigger mm-hmm. terrain. And we have, I mean, statistically, based on avalanche fatality numbers, or lack thereof, we've, we've done a good job, it appears, as avalanche incidents have kind of flatlined with the increase in population of use. So it'll be interesting to see as we move forward whether that trend continues or whether we have a, a, a bump in that, in that curve as people push that envelope even tighter and tighter with less experience. Closing the margins. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, it's interesting. I, w- I wonder if there is a way to quantify that, that margin. Maybe somebody that's listening wants to take this on. But like, how do, how do we actually quantify? Because we can quantify the numbers of backcountry use based on sale of backcountry gear. And then we can quantify the, the number of uh, reported accidents or near misses which isn't the whole picture because there are a lot that go unreported but then how do we quantify um that decision making and and how the margins are getting tighter good question yeah i don't have any answers (laughs) maybe somebody who's listening um has some thoughts on that and feel free to reach out and 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 share your thoughts with us um so, John, I was just kind of curious how your career progression kind of moved from ski patrolling and doing, you know, avalanche mitigation and snow safety work into the guide world. And, and you didn't mention this, but, um, you know, you, you've been going through the AMGA guide track for for all disciplines um, and are a certified rock and, and ski guide. How did that progression happen for you? And, and was there a change in your thinking along the way to, to wanting to get people out and, and teaching them about safe backcountry travel and, and, and moving into the guide world? Um, my motivation for guiding has always been just a passion for skiing and spreading that. Uh, that joy to, to other people and spending a good time in the mountains as we like to do. My experience guiding didn't start with formal training. I went into guiding, um, you know, with that kind of forecasting and uh, patrol background and was not, you know, initially convinced of formal guide training as a lot of people in the U S tend to be, we, it's just a different model here than it is in other countries where we're allowed to, to guide without necessarily formal guide training. So, you know, you gain experience and you maybe don't necessarily have a lot of incentive to, to, um, spend a bunch of money and get formal training, et cetera. So there has to be a, a reason why, uh, to convince yourself to do that. And I suppose the biggest reason was, um, seeing some of the holes in some of the outfits that I had worked with over the, over the years and, um, lack of standards at times and just wanting to find a better way. And 
when I started my own business, I started to realize that it would be a great opportunity to do things in a way that I saw best fit and um, take that opportunity to really um, do it from the ground up. And formal guide training was certainly a, uh, a way to go about that. And, and as well to have uh, an idea of uh, what was going on in the field with, with other guides that maybe worked before me, et cetera, just have standards in place and be tight. Mm-hmm. And how has your experience been going through the AMGA programs? Well, you know, it's been good overall, for sure. It, it, you, you certainly have, have to learn how um, to take feedback, and, and it's an art. You have to be willing to open yourself up and be, be vulnerable in that, in that sense. And in an industry where, you know, historically people are very ego, you know, egocentric and, and it's tough to, to kind of put that stuff aside and, and be able to take critical feedback and, and change. So there, there is a, there is a learning curve on how to kind of play the game to get the most out of the AMGA and, and, um, really learn. Cause if you're not open to learning and feedback, then you're not going to be able to pick very much up in the end. Mm-hmm. What would you say to somebody that, that argues that, oh, you can just kind of go into these guide programs without much experience and, and essentially like get all of your guiding experience through the AMGA program if you have enough money to, to work that angle? I think, I think that people entering the workforce with, with less experience and time in the mountains is fine with proper guidance. Mm. And I think that what is more dangerous is people entering the workforce without experience initially. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like a logical progression to, to enter with more formal education. Um, and, and then at least everybody has their a sense of standards that are in place already. And that doesn't have to be kind of learned or potentially have other things unlearned before they, they learn kind of an industry standard, right, et, et, et cetera. And I think it's becoming more and more commonplace for even non-accredited AMGA guide services to, at least if we're talking in the ski realm, really encourage their guides to be going through at least that first level ski guide course through the AMGA. Yeah, it, but it, it, you know, it is tricky because, you know, statistically, particularly in the ski discipline, there's a lot of mechanized ski guiding. Yeah. A lot of those jobs are not human powered roles. And, you know, you look at the guide training model and it's mostly human powered and Mm -hmm. that sort of centric. So it's, it's tough. You may not always get the best display out of certain candidates based on them working in different disciplines, variations of those disciplines. Right. But I mean, once, once you're, once the rubber hits the road, it's, you're standing on top of the slope, whether you got there via snowcat helicopter or hiking right like the downhill is the same the downhill guy uphill is a little different sure yeah Yeah. um yeah the the training is good and 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 by no means am i discrediting that there are a lot of good uncertified guides i was i i like to think that i was one of them for many years 
Um, so don't think that there aren't good ski guides that haven't been through the program. I, all I'm saying is that it's, it's good for continuity. And I think as we move forward and develop our business models further, that the continuity will help. Mm -hmm. And it's also some great mentorship, right? The, the instructors. Absolutely. So much of the guiding we do is without other guides by our side. So it's, it's hard to actually learn in the field sometimes if you don't have critical feedback it's a mm -hmm. unique opportunity to to actually be out with other guides which doesn't happen enough in, right. the, in the guide world it's just when when you have time you want to be filling that time with with clients and right filling the bank account if you can and making things continue to work yeah well nice job going through that program up to this point and and it sounds like you're going to continue and and uh, work towards your IFMGA status. So congrats on that and good luck moving forward. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, when, when I think about you starting a guiding company, I think of the Wasatch as like a pretty cutthroat place to do that, you know, with uh, uh, on one hand, you have a large population to tap into, right, that wants to get out and, and be guided in the backcountry. On the other hand, you have limited public land based on that population density um, and some other other very well-established operators there. Um, how did you navigate those waters? It, there, there's, no, there's no way to, to, uh, to, to do that without stepping on other people's toes or at least other people having that perception. It's tricky. Um, communities can be territorial um yeah i suppose just uh trying to do things better and set a good precedent is the only thing i can say to that right are you willing to talk about um some of your your permitted areas that you operate yeah so we've um you know, the Forest Service has has offered uh, a little bit different permitting opportunities in the last few years, and it's tricky. I mean, there, there's different permits for different districts, and there's different land managers. You got the Forest Service, BLM, state land, private land. Um, so if you're trying to operate and do various different things, you're more than likely having to talk to all sorts of different people, and sometimes even just getting the uh, the question, the, the conversation started can take many, many, many phone calls, lots of emails, time. I think, you know, at this point, we have 10 or 11 different different agreements between summer and winter use so across Utah and southern Idaho. And it's, it's, a, it's a constant battle. It's honestly probably the most work I do is just dealing with, with, with agreements and permitting and keeping current and trying not to miss deadlines and reports and etc. So it's tricky for sure. Um, some of the permits are uh, on, on a temporary basis. Other, other permits are, um, are longer term. Some come one year, some, some don't. Um, the, the Forest Service particularly is in a bit of a state of flux. Um, it seems like use in general has increased faster than they've been able to kind of catch up. So it's, it's tricky. So you operate in a, a little bit less in the central Wasatch and, 
and have found some zones that are 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 somewhat untapped. When we can, we yeah, we operate in the Central Wasatch for sure on um, on Forest Service land. Um, we operate in the Western Uinta Range, um, and we operate in the the Oka Range with some helicopter access, ski touring, and heli skiing on uh, state land and BLM land, and trying to kind of offer good product, do what we can to ski good snow and ideally good snow without lots of people around and yeah, find the goods where we can. Nice. So it's no secret, John, that the, the Wasatch is a busy place with backcountry recreationists and, and professional operations happening there, guiding, um, you know, both in the backcountry and, and adjacent backcountry terrain to ski areas. How do you deal with that as a as a guide outfitter um, to both show your guests the best possible ski day in the best snow with the least amount of people? And part two to that question would be, do you feel like you get put ever pushed into terrain based on um, what other people are deciding to ski? Sure. Well, I mean... It, the Wasatch is a great place. I mean, in the sense that it's busy for a reason. The access is tremendously good, and it's it's a it's a very realistic option for skiing, if people have a certain level of fitness. There's certainly tours you can do that utilize ski lifts, etc. But obviously, the closer you are to resorts and good access, the more people there's going to be, and it it's no doubt that that human influences, outside influences are, are going to change decision-making of various folks when you're in the field. If there's ski tracks in a line that you anticipate, you wanted to ski initially, then you, maybe you ski something else. Maybe you up the ante because you feel good potentially about the slope because you see ski tracks on it and you make that assumption, whether that's merited or not, that the stability is going to be better uh, than you anticipated before. So, you know, certainly we take um, our planning process in, in mo- the morning um, seriously and talk about terrain and put limitations on where we can and can go, regardless of what we see in the field. So most of our decision-making is done um, before we ever get in the field. Regardless. You're talking about like a run list? Sure, yeah, a run list um, and closing off terrain. I like to say... Uh, at least in avalanche education, it's it's not a conversation of uh, where you can ski. The conversation should be where you can't ski and then go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much good terrain in the Wasatch that you, you if you're flexible, you can find suit- a suitable venue. Now, people are variable, though, and it does affect the user experience at times. If there are people all over the place or if there's a helicopter landing on top of you when you're ski touring, then that potentially takes away from the experience. So, yeah, I mean, it, I've, I, I really feel like some of these more wilderness experiences ha- have a lot of value and sometimes they can take a little more effort to get to on, the, on egress or 
or a little maybe a little more driving time or more involved logistics in general to find skiing that's a little more unique and away from people so um you know with some of my background um cat ski guiding in the uintas i've been exposed to um, over the years some of the terrain out there so in that specific venue uh, you know we've started offering um, snowmobile access ski touring and some yurt trips that have some help with snowmobile egress and i think that's a, a tremendous venue and experience just being away from the masses um, you know in the in the in the yokers getting uh, access with helicopter and, and, and touring and in zones where they're just aren't other people big terrain and something that's in plain sight of salt lake city just the access isn't there unless you're um, really fit or happen to have a helicopter at your disposal mm-hmm. so um there's that would you say your operating plan or your daily operating plan or maybe we could call it a strategic mindset is different if you're going to be operating in the central Wasatch as opposed to the Uintas? Well, like, it, like would, is your mindset different? Maybe, and I'm not trying to put a label to the strategic mindset, but uh, when I think about that and I think about trying to guide in the central Wasatch and then I think about trying to guide in the Uintas, I feel like I could take a much bigger, just deep breath going out into the Uintas where I'm not going to see as many people. You well, you do, but you're <laughs> there's less information. Every anytime you have less information, as a consequence, I mean that's the consequence of of less people. It's a trade off. You, you don't have you don't have as much to base your 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 accuracy or your forecasting off. So you you tend to have more conservative decision making, and you mm-hmm. take baby steps into that terrain versus um, maybe you have greater familiarity and greater traffic in a zone in the central Wasatch. You, you, um, you may not have that base to go off of when you're, mm-hmm. when you're out touring. Right. Which kind of leads to the progression of mindset throughout a career. Right. And so what would you say looking back on your career and looking forward on your career to come how has your mindset and confidence level progressed or evolved throughout your life? <laughs> well, it, I mean, that's not an easy question, but um, I like to think that I ha- remain more, more and more calculated and more <laughs> more calibrated with with every every day that I go out in the mountains. But it, that's what's so amusing about the, the idea of risk tolerance is that you, you just don't necessarily know where you are because you don't get direct feedback in every instance. But um, certainly uh, hope, hope that every day uh, I'm being more and more conservative, but time will tell. Right. Yeah. It's interesting and, and it's a good thing to examine, you know, probably more than once a season it's how how we are progressing um through our careers or whether that's guiding or just personally skiing and yeah creating and obviously my risk tolerance is going to be different guiding versus not or depend or depending on the ability level and experience of particular clients etc but um i've definitely become more i mean you you want to you want to expose yourself to risk when only when 
it's a manageable problem. So there are certain times of the year where it's, I have no problem nowadays just being hands off. If you're dealing with a particular problem, you know, potentially fatal persistence slot problem, then it's easy. You just, you just don't put it on the table and do something else. You stay out of that terrain entirely and it's not a part of the conversation. Um, which kind of often is coincides with the, that sort of seasonal mindset of, of forecasting. It's like don't have any expectations of skiing early season in an intermountain snow climate, a continental snow climate in steep terrain. And if the conditions do align that you can, it's a bonus. Whereas maybe when you know, you're dealing with more manageable problems and maybe you have a, your, your group has a you know, good ability to be able to deal with a, a smaller problem should it al- arise, then maybe maybe you're willing to step out a little bit and and get into get into some bigger terrain with more hazard. But you got to know when to do that and when specifically not to do that. Mm. It's pretty important to be able to frame our experiences not just based on the expectations that we put on those experiences before we even have them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always easy. Like if you live in an area and you're able to ski a number of days in the season, I find that to be fairly easy. I go ski where the mountains let me ski. When I run into, when I personally have the hardest difficulty with these decisions is when I'm in an area where I, maybe I'm not always, if I go to a hut in Canada or something like that and you want to get after it. And you need to be willing to at least acknowledge the fact that that's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you want to need to mitigate those those self-imposed pressures that are going to influence your, your decisions potentially. Sure. John, just looking back on your career, any any stories you got of close calls or accidents? I, I, I'm thinking of one in particular that, you know, I this terrain feature that I've passed by um, many times on an avalanche mitigation route that 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 you had as well um, yeah so uh, at oh, Mount Solitude mm-hmm. so for those for those who don't know my 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 career uh, in the avalanche world started you know like patrolling in solitude and then Caleb right after I had worked there the our host here Caleb started uh doing the same thing ran the same routes and so we we know each other from that context which is great but never worked together they never worked together exactly um but uh yeah so we were up you know on on uh route 19 and on above honeycomb canyon in big cottonwood canyon there at solitude and we were up on a on a really active day and um it was more active and more snow. It was a snow. It kept snowing quite a bit during the day, and it became evident partway through the route that we just weren't. I mean, it was futile, really, even being up there because we were going to have to come up and do the same thing the following day, and there, it wasn't going to open. And we weren't going to be able to get it open based on what was going on. Um, we had really active conditions, um, so much so that. Um, you know, big things were sliding just with just walking on the ridge, you know, remotely. And um, we basically, the team of three of us kind of ran out of explosives just 
trying to get to a part of the route, um, just, you know, safely mitigating terrain so that we could even stay on the route to get to a place where we could descend. And, um, yeah, we made the call to, to kind of bail off, uh, before the end of the route in a, in a, in a known safe zone. And we were skiing down, um, the snow was great. Um, it was my third year as a ski patroller. We sort of say, you, you look at some of the, like Bruce Tremper's graph and saying alive and avalanche terrain, you got a lot of confidence when you're three years into the game. So maybe I was on the rise of my risk tolerance. Um, so yeah, I was skiing, uh, unfortunately last out of the group of three and thought I knew exactly where I was in the terrain. I'd been up there. I was really confident in the route and came over a breakover. And my goal was to do a big, big turn to my right. And unfortunately had too much speed and got too low on the slope. Shouldn't have been there in the first place at all. Should have been way more conservative based on the high hazard conditions. Um, and basically got caught and flushed down a steep slope uh, through the trees without any of my partners being able to see that I'd even been caught, which was a big mistake. Mm. And I was really fortunate that I didn't have injury, but got um, lost some gear. Uh, I remember being kind of headfirst downhill, uh, you know, not able to really do anything, just getting washing machined skis and poles you know, stripped off pretty immediately. And then I remember kind of washing around several trees, pine trees, as I got kind of flushed down that 38-ish degree slope uh, for maybe 400 feet, something like that, before I came to rest, um, buried to my waist. Kind of as the debris was slowing down, I was able to really do a big swimming motion with my left arm and kind of um, in an attempt to pull myself up to the surface, unfortunately, was able to. Um, yeah, it was pretty scary. Didn't sleep very well for about a month after that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting with that that particular route um, because you, it's a relatively safe route for over half of the terrain and, and we're talking this is a long route there's 43 shot placements along that ridge line that protects all of the the valley floor of the honeycomb canyon um you know has some amazing ski lines off that ridge but by being able to just stay ridge top for the majority of that route i always felt like it was fairly safe until you got to the area that you're talking about where um, the ridge line is a little bit less well-defined and there are those steeper breakovers in the trees. Yeah, the ridge is less sharp. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more of the gradual breakovers in that zone. And so you guys were kind of just looking for egress. And, totally. And, and that area is, if you stay just to a little bit right of where you were, that's pretty resistant terrain. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Just, it's slope angle is low, and it, there isn't much above you. However, either side of that zone is is committing 
avalanche terrain with with big problems big trees i mean big terrain traps big vegetation trees, rocks yeah um and it's worth yeah it's worth noting that just before that zone where i was caught the boundary shoots there was a an accident in the in the 90s which mm-hmm. resulted in a patrol fatality unfortunately right um how did your operational knowledge of solitude and and kind of how you ran mitigation routes did it change after that or or just moving forward oh in your career? yeah i mean we like to yeah i mean a good that full next season which started for me in new zealand uh six months later uh so about a full year after that incident i was looking closely over my shoulder and I, I did, I definitely had a, a knock in my confidence. Definitely. Mm. Um, and that's, that's tough when you have to be an avalanche trained to, to do your job. You feel like something is, is, uh, right there, ready to, ready to, um, give you problems. And, you know, with time you gain confidence back and, and, um, maybe with that confidence, maybe that, you know, makes you more effective, mm-hmm. uh, at running routes again, for sure. Um, but you know, ultimately it was my, um, the reason I was able to get the, the job first job in New Zealand was the, my experience with explosives at solitude. There's just so much avalanche train and so much time using explosives that, um, other parts of the world just don't don't get that experience yeah i've said it before on the show and and i really feel like um it's a great way to get experience just just seeing avalanches happen at a class a ski class a avalanche ski resort i mean it's interesting yeah i mean somebody that comes into the you know ultimately into the guiding world from um if you start as a patroller i mean obviously we're biased here we're both a couple patrollers Mm -hmm. on the yarn here so it's it's uh (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you're you're out there intentionally triggering avalanches, which by all means is not the safest thing job decision in the world, um, but you're going to learn a lot and of how avalanches work, um, which is a totally different mindset to guiding. Mm. Guiding is you are avoiding avalanches. Right. So um, somebody maybe that doesn't get into guiding from a patrol background, maybe they don't see that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is food for thought. Everybody's yeah. got their own background. Do you feel like you're more comfortable kind of stepping on small test slopes or maybe throwing a ski cut in of, of clearly with nobody below you um, because of your patrol background? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it is it, also without question that it, it potentially gives me more confidence than I should have. Yeah, I agree with that for <laughs> sure. Like managing small avalanches. <laughs> we find it. I mean, patrollers are classic. You, you're... <laughs> You're trying to trigger avalanches when you have, when there's no need. Mm-hmm. There's, you just want to see snow move because you're programmed to, <laughs> you're programmed to get the terrain open. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you do need to take a step back at times, whether it's recreationally or in the guided context, that you don't necessarily need to trigger out every uh, every slope that you see, even if it is fun. Right. That's a good. That's good advice there. So we've been talking quite a bit about the, the operating in the confines of either guiding or ski patrolling, running avalanche mitigation routes. Um, you do a lot of skiing personally and, and you're a well-accomplished 
ski mountaineer um, and, and have some pretty impressive ski traverses under your belt. Um, these are a lot of objective-based ski missions. Um, yeah. How do you manage that within your personal risk tolerance um, when you have an idea of what you want to do and maybe the conditions don't line up perfectly for that? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we've all heard of Summit Fever, right? Yeah. Um, I think that the big the biggest thing is is in the planning process. Um, I and obviously that like I was saying that that plays a large role in the in our planning and forecasting and in the commercial context as well. But um, setting realistic objectives for what's going on in general for the season. And only having, only going there when you think there's a chance it makes sense. So things are going to be in condition at certain times and probably out of condition at certain times. So we need to understand that certain terrain is just not, just really doesn't make sense to even try to be there. Uh, maybe, you know, part for the, maybe just the spring it's appropriate. Maybe it's, potentially earlier in the year. Maybe it's just um, when the stars align and there happens to be the certain snow surface that makes um, those conditions appropriate to be, to be in that terrain. Otherwise having the flexibility to do something else mm-hmm. and make, and make the best of the situation. So in the context of a, you know, a ski traverse, yeah, you might have a, the objective of skiing, you know, big, big line A to big line B, but along the way, something changes and maybe you, you divert and do something else and make the best of the situation. Uh, maybe you don't leave hunt. Maybe if you're trying to ski some big face and you're all fired up on it cause you saw somebody else ski at the week before on Instagram, you know, or whatever. Sorry for those <laughs> vested in the, the platform. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you do something else. Maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so having realistic expectations, and I think, is the the first place to start. Sure, that's that's pretty sage advice. That is a constant that keeps coming up on on these interviews that I do with with uh, many other professionals. Uh, yeah, is not boxing, not painting yourself into a corner, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. And having yeah. the humility to just just turn around. Yeah, yeah, and I like skiing. I mean. I also, I also like skiing stuff when, I mean, my, my, my first and foremost is whether, am I going to find good snow or not? Mm-hmm. You know, and then I, I kind of go, well, well, well okay, it's probably the snow is good. Maybe it is or isn't. And then, and then we work into, is it, is it real, is it realistic? You know, is there, is, is it the, the right time of year for one? Is it, is it the right conditions? You know, what, what hazards are, am I, are, are you putting yourself in jeopardy of if mm-hmm. you misjudge something being out of condition? Um, you know, like I'm here in Southern Oregon right now and what are we at? June, June middle of 12th, yeah. something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I came out to ski Mount Shasta and you know, I had plans earlier in the month. Um, you know, didn't leave the house because we didn't have the conditions that exactly thought it was going to be. And then another one week went by and then, you know, 
just didn't still didn't look like it was you know maybe the wind picks up and maybe a little new snow and you don't think it's gonna ski just how you thought or maybe the weather isn't just as reliable as you thought it was going to be so you delay again and then then the weather lines up and then you're like okay now it's go time now we got to drive out there and then you better get it while you get while you can get it because it you know it's probably not going to stay that way mm-hmm. so um it, it definitely in my experience of just being flexible do do what your cards are what what your what hand you have you know, that's the biggest, the biggest thing. And you'll have a good time here, regardless of what you choose to do. Maybe go rock climbing instead. Yeah. What a dynamic environment that we love to operate in, right? I mean, that's what makes it so it's interesting. It's always changing. Yeah. And, you know, some people, you know, like to say, well, you know, I think a lot of people get into backcountry skiing thinking that they're doing it to get good skiing. And for me, I think the only thing that keeps me interested is the fact that it is dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it very thought provoking to have to make these decisions and have to adjust. And, you know, you take a lot of pride in your, your planning process and, and going out and getting as good of what the mountains can give you on the given day. And it's incredibly rewarding when you come away knowing that you made good decisions in the mountains and adjusting. That's what keeps your mind busy. It's not just, you know, I mean, yeah, it's great skiing, great snow with good stability, uh, but is it as thought provoking as, as, you know, taking advantage of what the mountains gave you on that given day? Hmm. Well, it's, it's pretty evident that you're dedicated to refining the craft and, uh, I, I wish you the best going forward with the backcountry pros. Where could people find out a little bit more about uh, offerings through the, yeah, the website? Check out, uh, www.thebackcountrypros.com. Okay. You on the socials? The socials, yes. The Backcountry Pros on Instagram and the book. Okay. No tweeting. <laughs> I don't tweet either. <laughs> I leave that to other people. I, I, le- I leave that to uh, our leaders. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, John, it's been great sitting down with you. I appreciate your time. And thanks for sharing your experiences of your career within the snow and avalanche arena. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Look forward to skiing with y'all soon. Hell yeah. Cheers. See ya. hope you all liked that one great conversation thanks again john appreciate you don't forget to tune in this thursday january 21st for third thursday hosted by wes Gregg, our canadian correspondent hey wes what do we have teed up for the third thursday this month oh hey caleb yeah this third thursday i'm gonna be talking with keith robin and he's from Kootenai Avalanche Adventures down in Nelson, British Columbia. He's been teaching avalanche education for the last 30 years. He's a co-author of the AST Handbook, which is the book used here to teach the AST training courses for the Canadian Avalanche Association. And he just finished uh, finalizing the new AST2 curriculum for the instructors and uh, as with many areas 
He's been just super busy at the beginning of the season with just fully jammed up, packed up AST courses and uh, working with COVID restrictions, he's able to provide the in-class portion via Zoom and then the field portion using social distancing and masks when not possible. So yeah, it's a really good conversation with Keith. All right, well, we look forward to hearing that on the third Thursday here, which happens to fall on January 21st. Thanks, Wes. Yeah, no problem, man. Hey, you have a good time out there today. And once again, a big thanks to the supporters of the show, MND Safety, Ten Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. If your operation is looking for a new array of remote avalanche control systems, look no further than MND Safety for their wide array of Gazx, Gazflex, Obelex, and Daisy Bell remote avalanche control systems. If you're cruising the supermarket looking for that tasty microbrew, look no further than 10 Barrel Brewing. Check out their new East Meets West IPA called Nature Calls. The soundtrack today was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate your contribution to the podcast. Artwork, of course, was created by Mike T, Udaman T. To see more of his work, you can go to www.miket.com. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook to keep up with the latest releases of the podcast episodes. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you have any feedback for the show, please feel free to reach out with an email to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. If you're really enjoying the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.